Hi, and welcome to another edition of Asia Gaming Brief's face-to-face -face series. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Anastasia Horonis. Anastasia is a clinical psychologist and founder of the Australian Institute for Human Wellness. She's also an honorary associate at the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's an expert on mental health and addiction disorders. And she also works with a number of casinos on their RG training initiatives. I'm going to be talking to Anastasia today about the social stigma that comes with gambling and gambling addiction, particularly amongst Asian cultures. Um, and I'm hoping that from this, we can glean a little bit more about how we can better help the people who are at risk of suffering from gambling harm when we're approaching them on the gaming floor. Anastasia, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So I had the pleasure uh, of hearing your presentation last week at the Regulating the Game conference in Sydney, uh, where you talked about the importance of destigmatizing responsible gaming. Um, I guess, first of all, could you explain to us very briefly what's that challenge that you're seeing out there and, and what has been its consequences? So, I mean, we've made a lot of good progress in recent years when it comes to promoting the message of responsible gaming and responsible gambling. And, you know, many years ago, it was still a concept that we were just still defining and, and getting a grasp of. Um, what we're finding at the moment is that the, the term and the concept of responsible gambling is very much tied to and tangled up with the concept of problem gambling. And so what I mean by that is that while we want responsible gambling to be uh, something that people can use to prevent uh, problem gambling harms, what we end up finding is that people actually reject the notion of responsible gambling or don't get on board with strategies in which we might recommend because they think, well, I don't have a problem. So why would I utilize responsible gambling strategies? Why would I put measures in place to limit my you know, play or limit the amount of time I'm, I'm spending playing? I don't have a problem with it. So because we've sort of had this reactive approach to um, trying to assist those and, and who have problems with gambling and prevent that sort of harm, responsible gambling has come out as a result of that and it's become tangled up with that notion. So when I talk about sort of destigmatizing uh, problem gambling and responsible gambling, it's, it's with the aim to untie those two things so that people can get on board with the notion of responsible gambling as just something I do that is a safe way for me to engage with my play um, without any necessary uh, thinking about problems that I may or may not have. It's actually just a, a preventative thing or something I can do if I'm someone who might be vulnerable to experiencing harms perhaps in the future. You know, I recently had a chance to speak with a casino operator uh, about this particular issue. Uh, and this casino operator in question deals with a lot of Asian and Chinese VIP gamblers. Um, and what they found is when, when it comes to trying to have a conversation about uh, responsible play with this group, in particular, um, they're, they're off, more often than not, they're met with uh, like this defensive or sometimes a combative attitude. Um, and, and I might be at risk of getting a little bit too much into this, the social science behind all of this. But, you know, why does it happen among certain groups? And, and like, where does that all come from? Yeah, look, there's certainly certain groups who might be more at risk and certain groups um, where we know there are higher rates of, of stigma and shame. And I, I talk about that, not just sort of specific to gambling, but gambling is falling 
problem gambling is falling underneath that umbrella of mental health. Um, and when we do look at um, some of the, you know, Asian communities, there is higher shame and stigma that, that we have found, like the research has shown when it does come to um, getting assistance for things like gambling problems or, or mental health and, and addiction more broadly. So mm. with that added barrier, then having sort of say casino staff try and approach um, a, a customer is, is going to be much more difficult because there is that added barrier of, of stigma and shame. And where does that stigma come from? Is, is you know, it, it comes from like a, from their culture, from their upbringing. Like, is there a, a specific thing you can pinpoint and say, well, that, that's why there's so much stigma amongst this group? It, it can be a range of factors. Culture definitely definitely comes into it, that within some cultures um, there is certainly that uh, perception of um, don't share vulnerabilities, don't share if you're struggling with, with sort of people outside, say, the, the family, the immediate family or the community. Um, so, so there can definitely be those factors. I think the other the other factor that comes into it is sort of how normalized is something like gambling and, and gaming within a particular culture and, um, you know, views around uh, luck and things like that, that if someone is sort of gambling and, and winning, that 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 sense of luck is very much tied to their character and, and person, perhaps more so in some of the Asian cultures than in the Western cultures. Um, so there's there's probably a number of factors that come into play in terms of looking at potential added barriers there. And you've helped a lot of staff get become better equipped at approaching these people uh, in these situations. So what kind of advice are you giving to them about going over these encounters? Mm. Building building rapport is a really key part of it. You know, if we just have staff approach someone who seems to be perhaps struggling with with um, limiting their uh, their play if if we just sort of come out of the blue we're probably going to be more likely to met, be met with defensiveness um, but if there is some sort of relationship and rapport that can be developed and that might just be having a conversation of you know hey how's it going today are you enjoying your your day here are you, are you having fun gambling you know just starting that initial conversation to build the relationship that's a really crucial part um, because then there's a foundation from which to potentially escalate that conversation to something like hey like I'm noticing that it doesn't always seem that fun for you how can we help mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm always just thinking you know and, and coming from an Asian background myself I, I can understand why there's that perceived feeling of shame or, or disgrace that that could come from really any kind of addiction and not just gambling addiction. Um, I, I was looking at some data earlier and I thought it was quite interesting and, and wondering if you have a, a take on it. Um, the Philippines in the last eight years has excluded around 1,200 people in total um, from the country's gaming establishments. Uh, and I think that's in Macau, I think that was more like around 3,000 in the last 10 years. Interestingly, in Singapore, um, I saw as many as 178,000 in just 2020 uh, excluded from casinos. And, and I'm not sure what the, what the data is in Australia. I think it's difficult to pinpoint because we have so many different ex self-exclusion programs and across different sectors, different states. Um, but I just wonder what causes that massive discrepancy even amongst some of these Asian jurisdictions? I think the way in which self-exclusion programs are pitched, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, is a really important factor here. 
you know, what does actually excluding yourself from a venue involve? Do you have to go into the venue? Do you have to have your photo taken? Is it that you have to exclude for a period of 12 months? And if you breach that, that you're facing a, a quite significant penalty? Um, you know, what, what's involved in the process? Because at the moment, some processes, I think, in, in my opinion, probably add to the stigma and shame. Um, it's it's almost like this sort of you're a criminal if you're applying for this process. For other mm. for other self exclusion programs, it's much easier. You can do it online. It's more accessible. Um, there's more flexibility over how long you self exclude for. Um, and I think that's really where we need to be moving towards because, um, you know, self exclusion is very much tied in some places to I have a problem, therefore I need to self exclude. But again, coming back to well, maybe I've just had some sort of significant life event occur. I may be feeling a bit vulnerable. Maybe I want to put some sort of, you know, limit on myself for the next few months just to keep myself safe. Don't necessarily need to have a problem, but I'm just safeguarding myself. So I, I think, you know, self-exclusion programs, we have some work to do there to really look at what's the most effective way of implementing them and then determining, using that to determine you know, how many people are actually signing up for them to get the most benefit out of them. You made a really great analogy uh, last week around the, the, the sort of di differences and similarities between problem gambling, responsible gaming and problem drinking and responsible drinking as well. Could you, could you give us a very brief overview of, of kind of you, how you see those two coming together? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we've we've made more progress in the space of drinking and, and consumption of alcohol, where nowadays it is, particularly in Australia, a, a common message to hear things like don't drink and drive. If you are planning to go out and drink, then have a, um, you know, plan B ride to get home. I know things now like if I'm going to go out and, you know, consume alcohol, that it's a good idea to eat before I do so, maybe have some water um, in between drinks, you know, maybe limit it to one, one standard drink per hour. I know not to drink if I'm trying to fall pregnant. And, you know, none of these things are, are necessarily things that I might be conscious of or doing because I'm thinking I'm going to do this because I might have a drinking problem or to prevent developing a drinking problem. I do them because they're safe, responsible strategies for me to put into place if I want to go out, have a good time and minimize the harmful effects of alcohol. And, and I think we're yet to catch up with, with being able to translate that into, into gambling. What, what would be your suggestions to uh, the government or, or to the industry to put out messages that are going to be a bit more well-received I think we have to normalize it. Like with drinking, it's been a bit of a slow burn. It's been constant messaging over time, um, you know, within, you know, messaging within pubs, labels on bottles, uh, campaigns that we see on TV. So similarly with gambling, I think we need to come at it from all directions, um, but, but have that consistency of responsible, safe play is normal. It's a good thing to do. You don't need to have a problem to do it. Um, and and start to shift the 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 culture and the, the the stigmatism that's attached to those safe safe play strategies. Um, I just wanted to round this out now. Uh, responsible gaming in Asia, uh, it's just I think it, from my perspective as a, as a journalist, uh, it's just not something that gets as much airtime as we have in Australia and possibly in some of the some other jurisdictions of the world. I think Europe actually does a really great job um, in certain places. But I mean, what work needs to be done amongst Asian jurisdictions to make this more of a, a normalized conversation, do you think? 
I think exactly what you just said, like normalize the conversation, whether it's um, within casinos to, to start to normalize that, you know, someone may come up and approach you about your gambling behavior if it does seem to be, um, you know, in those upper limits of what we would consider um, harmful or, or if someone's displaying those sort of risk factors, um, you know, whether it's sort of governments and, and public health campaigns, are like we really want to be getting ahead of the curve. So we don't want to just be reactive to um, people sort of developing problems relating to, to gambling, um, but actually get ahead of the curve and look at prevention and preventative strategies and strategies that are appropriate for people who are in that, you know, low risk category. Um, and that is going to require, I believe, sort of constant messaging, normalizing the conversation and making it a, a normal, responsible thing for people to do to, to assess and reflect on their own gambling behaviors. Well, thank you very much for your insights today, Anastasia. And it's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you very much. And that was Dr. Anastasia Horonis, a responsible gaming and mental health expert talking to us about some of the cultural differences that could have a profound impact on responsible gaming initiatives. Tune in every Friday as we hear from the leading minds in Australia's and Asia's gaming industry.